So we're continuing this morning our series uh, looking at the life of David. And we're going to move from uh, John's excellent last two weeks from a problematic relationship to a positive one. We're going to move from looking at David's relationship with Saul to David's relationship with Jonathan. But it struck me as I was preparing for this that we love to compartmentalize things, don't we, to, to make sense of things. So we've got this series going on where we're looking at specific individual relationships. But we know that life isn't like that, is it? So David's life was a mixture of his relationship with Saul and his relationship with David and his relationship with his brothers and learning how to be a good warrior and understanding the calling of God on his life and having arguments with his older brothers in, in the family. And so it was all going on at the same time and fighting Goliath and dealing with all the adulation that will have come his way as a consequence of that. His life was like ours, much more like a plate of spaghetti, isn't it? With everything interwoven rather than a kind of single baked potato. We're not having single baked potatoes over the week. It's looking at a man whose life was as complex and as challenging in many ways as we might think ours is as well. Understanding the good times, trying to get through the bad times, working his, through, his way through complicated, difficult, and challenging situations. But we come across now his relationship with Jonathan, and it's a very, very special relationship. Hands up anybody who knows anything about David and Jonathan's relationship. I, yeah, lots of people here. It is a beautiful relationship. And it also struck me that as you think and read through the Old Testament up to this point, you have a description of lots of relationships in the Bible, you know, Joseph and his brothers and, you know, Abraham and his navigating his way through God calling him and all the rest of it. But most of them seem to tell a story which is pretty much about um, Israel being born as a nation, being called by God, it were, there were stories that were about the growing understanding of God's dealing with humanity and the kingdom of God and the people of God, Israel. So a lot of the relationships were around what, what people did well or not so well in response to, uh, in, in obedience to, to God, but also what was the consequence of those relationships in establishing Israel as a kingdom. It seems that when we hit David and Jonathan, it's the first time, unless, and I'm, I'm happy to be corrected, but it seems to be the first time we have a description of an intimate friendship just because it's an intimate friendship, not because it's leading to anything else, although the consequences of that relationship clearly did lead to other things. So in it, we read of, um, a lot of tenderness and a lot of commitment and a lot of love and a lot of respect and a lot of humility and a lot of service. And so I think it's quite unique in the early part of the Bible. We do have others like Ruth and Boaz and, and you know, we, uh, others within that, but this is a particularly unique and specific relationship. So it's good to think about it just in those terms. They're the, it was the kind of relationship that we have with other people. You know, sometimes because of the cultural thing, um, it, it's sometimes hard to really associate with what might have been happening to Joseph because not many of us get, you know, sold into slavery, for example. Um, some do, but not many here, probably. Or delivered. Um, and so 
when we come to David and Jonathan, it's very different. We can feel an immediate connection with that relationship, can't we? So, next slide. I've, when I de- did David and Goliath, I did it in acts. I'm doing this in episodes, okay? So, we've got four episodes this morning. Episode one, Jonathan breaks onto the scene. Now, Jonathan's life covers about, well, quite a lot of chapters in, in 1 Samuel and uh, the first uh, part of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1. So, obviously, we can't read all of that. I'd encourage you to read through it. There's lots of other stuff going on as well, and John's covered that. It overlaps what John was talking about in terms of time and space. Uh, but have a look at it just in relation to David and Jonathan. It will do you good to have a think about that, read those chapters through, just picking out the bits that relate to David and Jonathan. But who was Jonathan? So we can understand this man, get behind the man a little bit before we associate him with David. And 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 14, um, kind of, we, we, we get an insight into Jonathan. This is pre-Goliath, by the way. Okay, so take your, historically, your minds back to before David and Goliath had their standoff with David's victory. So the historical context in that time was that the Philistines had the upper hand on the Israelites pretty much all of the time. Israel generally were in trouble with the Philistines, and they were, uh, they were more likely to lose than win, particularly if they, they were disobedient, and they were vastly outnumbered. And this, uh, if we look at chapter 13, so just very briefly, I'm going to go through some quick points on cha- in chapter 13. We read that Saul has 2,000 troops. Jonathan has 1,000 troops who are probably some kind of bodyguard detachment for uh, regiment for Jonathan. And Jonathan was a bit sick and fed up of the grip that the Philistines had on the Israelites. So he decided, pretty much it looks like, without consulting anybody else, including his dad, he was going to do something about it. So he took his thousand men and he attacked the Philistine outpost. And uh, he just thought, well, let's get on with it. And so that um, killed some Philistines, which provoked, it poked the hornet's nest of the Philistine army. So they amassed 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers, and it says, the more and more troops than the sand on the seashore. Okay? Bear in mind, they had 2,000 with Saul and 1,000 with Jonathan. So incredibly, vastly outnumbered. And it, it talked about Israel, uh, there, was, uh, there was a standoff, and there was, Israel were quaking in the boots to the point that a lot of the Israelites who were with David and Jonathan either went to hide in caves, some of them even went across to the Philistine lines, joined the camp of the Philistines, deserted altogether. And by the end of that standoff and all that period where people drifted away in the, in the, uh, in the face of obstruction and opposition, Saul had 600 men, and Jonathan had himself and one person. Now, to make matters worse, there were only two swords in the whole of Israel at the time, because the Philistines had done away with all the blacksmiths in Israel in case they got strong and built weapons, made weapons. Saul had a sword. Jonathan had a sword. So, on balance, you would think, by the time the dust had settled, 
Jonathan was probably no longer on his dad's Christmas card list. Okay. So, that's chapter 13. Impasse. Nothing happening. In 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan did the same again. Didn't learn, or was he just being inspired by God? He didn't seem to learn. He decided that another attack was necessary. But four, it says in verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, he didn't tell his father, I wonder why. So anyway, picture the scene. Jonathan has seen a little outpost of about 20 Philistine uh, soldiers. They were on opposite sides of a valley. So they were, uh, the, Jonathan and his, his armor bearer, which is the only sword, was on one side and he could see on the cliffs on the other side a small outpost and there was a, a big ravine between the two. So Jonathan says, I have a plan. Said this to his, it says a young armor bearer. And so we read this here. He says, he says to his, um, oh, his young armor bearer, it's up there. Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. And his young armor bearer said, do all you have in mind. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. I mean, isn't that touching? In fact, his heart and his soul was all he had with him, actually, because he didn't. He was carrying Jonathan's armor, and he had no means of protecting himself. Uh, so bless him. I mean, that's, that's real commitment, isn't it? I'm with you, heart and soul. So they set out a plan which involved, if, you know, calling out, and if they said, come up, you know, they thought, well, that was a sign from God that God was with them. Um, and they carried on and say, oh, come up, yeah, because the, the Philistines thought we'll consort these two out, no problem at all. Anyway, result is, Jonathan, um, and presumably his armor bearer, once he'd managed to nick a sword from one of the Philistines, uh, murdered and slaughtered 20 Philistines at, the, at that outpost. And, you know, that was a victory for them. And what it did was it caused panic throughout the whole of the Philistine army at that point. And God, it says God sowed panic. And they started fighting amongst themselves. So Saul, with these 600 men from the previous chapter, said, hang on a minute, there's something going on over there. There's, let's get it, let's see what's going on. And then all of a sudden, all the people came back out of the caves, and even the people who had deserted across to the Philistines came back, and God uh, wrought a victory. There was a victory. Saul had a victory over the Philistines on that occasion. But the point I want to make here is that Jonathan was pretty formidable in his own right. He wasn't associating himself, as we come to see that, with, with David, because somehow he felt, oh, I need David's, I need to be associated with a man of power and victory. Jonathan was someone who was prepared to step out in faith, someone who was prepared to not accept the status quo, someone who was prepared to see the situation through the eyes of faith and a different perspective uh, than his, his father, the king, and pretty much all of the rest of the army of, of Israel. And I suspect in battle, you would want someone like Jonathan on your side. He's someone you'd want to be associated with. So that's episode one. That's a very brief summary of Jonathan himself. Episode two, Jonathan meets 
David. We're fast-forwarding as three chapters, and at the very end of the chapter we looked at when David killed Goliath, you remember um, at the end of uh, the chapter it says, Saul talked to David, asked who he was, where he came from, etc. At the same time as David was stood there with his sling and his shepherd's kit on holding the head of Goliath, dripping blood on the floor. Nice image, isn't it? Just holding the head of Goliath. And Saul brings David into his service. Um, And basically, we have the first reference specifically to to David and Jonathan. Um, And they were were joined uh, together. Now, I thought I actually... Yeah, so there we go. Uh, one, sorry, one time later. Let's read this, and I'll go. I'll go over um, a couple of things from here. After David had finished talking with Saul, so this is literally just as as what I've de- described has happened. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his uh, return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army, and this pleased the troops and Saul's officers as well. Now then, just slight change. If there's a film, you know, when they change the music a little bit and there's a bit of sense of foreboding, this is, this is the point the music would change. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Da, da, da. And you know, life is never going to be the same again. You know those, those occasions in, in, in movies or books where you just read a few words or something happens and you just know there's no going back. There's no recovery. There's no return to whatever the beautifulness was before. It's all changed. He's killed his ten thousands. Saul was very angry this refrain, refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time onwards, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, I've read that out because it's important, because it's not just the first bit we're going to look at now and da- Jonathan's immediate response to David, but also the seed of jealousy was sown in Saul's heart, which then defines the ongoing relationship that David had with Jonathan and specifically how Jonathan supported him. So basically, I was wondering, did Jonathan and David meet? Did they know each other before this? We know that just prior to uh, David taking on Goliath, he had been in the king's presence because he played the harp when, when uh, Saul was unwell and troubled. Did Jonathan meet him then? I don't know. 
But certainly, I'm pretty sure David would have heard of Jonathan because of the, the things we looked at in 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 14. Jonathan had been instrumental in some of the victories that Israel had had over the Philistines. And, that, and, and Jonathan's older brothers were in the army. The stories would have gone round. You cannot, I don't think you could think about David not knowing who first Jonathan was and hearing about him. And it's that plate of spaghetti thing, isn't it? Life goes on. You know, it's not, we don't live our lives to the exclusion of understanding anything everywhere else, you know, anything that's happening anywhere else. So I suspect David probably had heard of Jonathan. Whether or not there'd been any connection before or contact before this, we don't know. But what we do know is when it happens, it's dynamic and incredible. And also, just before we look at um, what Jonathan did, which was astonishing. Um, if you read the whole David and Jonathan, we're talking about a David and Jonathan. It should actually really be Jonathan and David. He makes the running all of the time. He is the one who is always encouraging, supporting David. It's not the other way around. And we'll come to this at the end, but he... Jonathan came into David's life when David needed him an awful lot. He was absolutely, Jonathan was instrumental in David becoming the king he became. He's instrumental in protecting him, instrumental in looking out for him, instrumental in having his back at all times in a way that David never did and was never able to do for Jonathan. And at the very end, um, no, I won't say that. I'll come back to that. Okay, yeah. Stick roughly with the notes. Usually helps. So, <clears throat> we notice on the, uh, on the words, or we would if they were there. Oh. We notice that they became one in spirit with each other. This really is really important. Sets the tone for the whole relationship. And if we then, yeah, just go to the next slide, Travis. That's great. Thank you. This verse is particularly powerful and poignant. It's an extraordinary verse, actually, because becoming one in spirit is one thing, to commit yourself with your words to each other, for Jonathan to commit himself by saying something to David is one thing, but we all know that actions speak louder than words. Jonathan must have had a real revelation from God at that point as to who David really was. There's no other explanation for understanding his selflessness at this point. This is an extraordinary verse here. He took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, the symbolism here is really important because in Israel, the belt was where you, you had your wealth. It was where, essentially a money belt. You had... Um, it represented security uh, uh, and wealth. So people would carry their money in their belt. It was like Jonathan was saying to David, here is my, all of my security, all of the things that I have in this world, I'm giving to you. His sword and his bow, well, obviously, they're the means of attack and defense. And the tunic possibly the most significant of all, was his royal clothing. 
His tunic marked Jonathan out as the heir. He was the king's son. He was the future king. And he took it off and gave it to David. So when you talk about <clears throat> being one in spirit or one in heart, Jonathan went further than you could imagine anybody going in saying, basically, all I have, I give to you. And this forms the basis of what we'll look at in a second. That's a covenant. You know, that it talks about they made a covenant with each other. If you continue to look in the story in Samuel, you'll see that although David is seen as Israel's greatest king, the ancestor of Jesus, someone whose hymns and songs we're still singing today, Jonathan was the one who takes the initiative in the relationship. Deep down in his heart, Jonathan knew David was going to be king and not him. And we read, just go. Yeah, at the, at the end there. We'll come back to this in a second, a few minutes. The, the, the text at the bottom, sorry, it's quite small. I'll read it out. So this is quite a, a bit later where uh, Jonathan was really uh, protecting David from Saul. He says this, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Jonathan went home. David remained at Horish. And I don't think that Jonathan was trying to be something other than himself. It's not like he was trying to get favor with David. And if you look at what he just said there, you know, he was, he was again taking the initiative. He was just saying, David, I'm for you. We can often say that quite glibly, can't we? I'm for you. you know, I'm with you. I'm for you. Well, to the point of laying everything you are, everything you have, all your inheritance before someone else. I mean, it is an extraordinary spirit of generosity. But it seems to me that Jonathan could only do that if he was secure in himself. Otherwise, it would just not work in the way that it did. So episode three. Next slide, please, Charles. Covenant. We could spend weeks looking at this. We don't, it's not a word that we use an awful lot. There are lots and lots of definitions about it. Um, and the whole, we talk about, you may remember, the Old Covenant, which was we, as, as a phrase we used for the Old Testament, and the New Covenant is a phrase we used for, we use for the the New Testament, and we don't use those as much. We don't say, let's have a reading from the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. We just say the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the theme of covenant, right from God's early dealings with man through Noah onwards, there are various covenants that are described in the Bible, all of which have something to teach us about who Jesus is, actually, who God is and who Jesus is. They all lead up to the, the commitment. And when we break bread, and Jesus said, didn't he, this is the blood of the, the new covenant poured out. And there's a, there's a, 
A brief definition here says this covenant is a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to each other. Covenants define obligations and commitments, but they're different from contracts because they are relational and personal. In the Bible, as in the ancient, often in the ancient world, they're heavily weighted on one side. So, for example, God promising Noah not to destroy the world, well, that's fine, but that's all God. God has, he has all the power in that discussion. Noah has no power to protect the world forever. He's a mortal man, but God does. Abraham to make him a great, a great nation. He's often associated with kings and their people, so they would make covenants so the king would provide protection so long as the people were loyal and paid taxes and gave the king uh, lots of things in return or for faithful service. And the covenant between Jonathan and David is similar to this, as the story from now is predominantly about how Jonathan protects David. So if you're looking at that, you could probably say that the As I said earlier, the leader, the stronger one, the person who was in a position to give something was Jonathan and David was was receiving it, even though it felt like a very close, brotherly, uh, uh, equal relationship. But it it doesn't read like that if you think about it um, and and read through the stories. I just want to kind of sort of move towards the end, really, of looking at two examples. Oh, what's happened there? I had a bit of a nightmare with PowerPoint this week, and you'll see in a minute. I don't quite know what's happened. Something behind the scenes. So I just thought, go with it. Um, else I'll still be in the study trying to work it out. Two examples <clears throat> of Jonathan's unswerving commitment to David, which are expressions of his covenant, their covenant relationship. The first one is found in 1 Samuel 20. And uh, the scene here is that they're at... Um, there's a, a banquet in the evening, long, uh, a celebration feast. And David had, um, was hiding because he was, out, he was fearful of what Saul was going to do to him. And uh, he wasn't there the first night. Saul started stewing on this. Uh, and then he wasn't there the second night either. And then he said to Saul, he said, uh, Saul said to Jonathan, where is David? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I've found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he's not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Harsh. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now someone send to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Sound familiar? Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and on that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. So what, what can we pick up briefly from that story? First of all, 
Jonathan puts himself in the firing line by saying to Saul, actually, David asked me for permission. So immediately, Jonathan puts himself in center stage as to uh, the discussion with Saul, because he knew, well, first of all, he knew he was, he was kind of going to tell a lie. And secondly, he knew Saul wasn't going to be very happy. Secondly, he was prepared to challenge his father. Thirdly, Jonathan interprets Saul's attack on him, interestingly, as an attack on himself. See that? When, jo- when Saul held his spear at him to kill him, Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Now, did Saul somehow all of a sudden see David instead of Jonathan? But Jonathan clearly thought, you know, I am so associated with my friend that actually my father sees us as one. So close was the relationship. But Jonathan didn't just sit poking his way through dessert, sulking, moody, trying to be passive-aggressive to make sure everybody knew that he really was not happy. Now, if you had a, a spear thrown at you, you probably you know, wouldn't want to sit around anyway. I mean, by the way, Saul was, no wonder they didn't win any battles unless God was with them, because Saul couldn't hurl a spear over a room, because he tried to kill David twice in the same way, and he tried to get Jonathan as well. So he probably could have done some, you know, some more javelin practice if he was going to be any good at it. But it's a sad situation, isn't it? Anger, jealousy, hatred can produce actions. What would happen? It's, this is, would you actually... I know we can all get frustrated with our kids, those of us are from time to time, but you wouldn't be picking up something that would kill them and throwing at them, would you? Tragic. No, but Jonathan didn't just sit there. He underlined the importance of Saul's appalling behavior by leaving the feast, which normally would have attached a very significant consequence for anybody who did that without the king's permission. And the second thing, so just bear those in mind, the way in which Jonathan associated himself with David and was prepared to stand in his defense. To the second section here, and uh, we've already come up, we've already read this, but it's so touching and so important for us when we think about covenant. We'll come in a second to think about it, uh, you know, between ourselves here. So just go for, from 17. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Jonathan went home. David remained at Horesh. So let's just have a look at that in a second. First of all, there's a clear word of faith here from Jonathan to David. Do not be afraid. Fear is crippling, isn't it? Many of us will know that. It's crippling. David was fearful for his life. It's incredible to think that, isn't it? He knew God, Samuel, had anointed him. He knew the promises that um, were on his life that he would become king and succeed Saul. He'd been through great, not just Goliath. We know that David said he's 10,000s. You know, he was a high-ranking officer with a huge amount of favor from the other senior-ranking officers and the general kind of army of Israel. 
He'd seen battles himself. He'd killed Goliath. And he was still in fear. Now, I hope you find that encouraging. And you're not sitting there thinking, oh, well, I wouldn't be like that. Or, David, what, heart after God? No, do you find that encouraging? I do. Jonathan comes along and says, don't be afraid. He ministers faith, not fear. He then speaks prophetically. So he's, 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 he's spoken a word of faith. He speaks a prophetic word. My father will not kill you. Six words. Incredibly strong, powerful, with no need for any interpretation whatsoever. David didn't say, what do you mean by the word kill? I'm just trying, I'd like to look into that a little bit. No, he says he's not going to kill you. Don't be afraid. He's not going to kill you. And then he speaks of God's promises. You will be king. Don't be afraid. My father won't kill you, and you will be king. I mean, the economy of words is beautiful, isn't it? Not loads, like I'm using. Very succinct. But he also speaks out of humility. Ministers in faith. He's had a prophetic vision. He reminds of God's promises. And he says, I will be second to you. He also says, um, I'm sorry, then they renewed uh, their covenant together. And he remained with him until it was real. So who do you think here is really demonstrating the perfect example of servant leadership? It's not David. It's Jonathan. When we cast your mind back to what John's been saying over the last couple of weeks and the angst and the difficulty of David's relationship with Saul, how refreshing it must have been to have someone like this come alongside him at a time when he most needed it. Also says, I'm not sure whether I've um, got it in, in, uh, for on, on, on the screen today, but talks about, and you know, I, I will be second to you, I will serve you. I mean, that didn't happen, actually. It, all, all the rest did. But Jonathan, I, you know, and I will be second to you. Well, that didn't happen because Jonathan died alongside his father. And then obviously David became king. And even then, when David mourns Saul in 2 Samuel 1, and Jonathan particularly, just Jonathan gets a note at the end, but you can just sense the grief in David's. And that's where we get how the mighty have fallen. You know, we a phrase we use now is what David used for the first time when Jonathan died in battle. So, Faith, vision, prophecy, reminder of God's promises, humility, renewing his commitment together. So what about the practical outworking of all of this? So we've kind of touched on it already, but there are just a few things here. What does covenant between friends mean? And how can we learn from this relationship that David had with Jonathan 
for how we uh, might live and be together as a family. Well, Jonathan warned David of danger. He was aware of what was going on. You get the impression that Jonathan was a savvy kind of guy, wasn't he? He had his ear to the ground. He noticed things. He could see the way the wind was blowing. But he was also savvy spiritually as well. He had his ears and eyes open to what God was saying to him. So he was prepared to warn David of danger. He spoke well of David to the point that he was prepared to confront his own father who could have had him killed. In fact, tried to do it himself. Spoke well of David. He was completely and totally available to David when he needed him. He stood firm in his commitment to David when it was tested. He followed through with his promises despite the danger. And he was a constant source of encouragement. Constant source, a river, a flow of encouragement to David. I would say here that loyalty doesn't necessarily mean that we always agree together. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd all be the same, think the same, do the same. And this can be challenged in, uh, under periods of stress or times of crisis or difficulty or change. And I just, when I was, Mike was chatting earlier about um, the reference in, in 1 Corinthians 12, I think it was, and bringing new members, which is great to see you. Fantastic to, to be able to do that. And Mike mentioned we don't do membership here. And that's been a source of discussion for quite a while. In fact, for as long as I can remember. Because I guess sometimes we, we like the idea of being committed. We know where we stand. If there are rules, if there, there's this, and we've, we've signed on the dotted line. I guess my question would be, would signing on the dotted line make any difference when the pressure's on? Or knowing you're part of a family make a difference? when the pressure's on. So we're very blessed to have our three kids married, settled. But never once did I think when James met Lou, Catherine met Mike, and Johnny met Haley, that I needed to set aside a bit of a time to do a membership course for them. I'm not desperately waiting till Harriet, who is now three and a half, till she can read and write and understand and sign what being a member, a granddaughter in the Davison family means. It's nonsense, isn't it? Don't think about it once. Because family should trump everything else. If we start having to write it all down, we're in trouble. Don't get the impression that David and Jonathan wrote down a covenant commitment. Don't know what they did. Haven't a clue. In some cultures, you'd, you'd nick your flesh on both and join them with blood. So you'd have a blood commitment, covenant. But we are a family. And that is, sounds great, doesn't it? Oh, happy family. We're all happy families. But does that mean it all goes swimmingly? No, it doesn't mean it all goes swimmingly. But when the heat is on, we should understand 
our core values of being in love with each other as a family of God. A number of us in this room have had experience of previous church organizations, and I won't go into the whole detail, but we were involved with something called Covenant Ministries for many years, who, who, who happened on you know, some truth which was incredibly positive. But there were occasions within that that it was less about care and love. It's whether we all agreed on everything. It doesn't help because we won't all agree on everything. But if we genuinely love each other and we genuinely love Jesus, then we, we, could, we could say our relationship is a covenant relationship. What I'm not saying is this, that all of a sudden we should start, um, oh, how do I say this? I, I was going to say over-spiritualize. I mean, it can become quite intense. Um, should we all have this kind of relationship? No, probably not. What we need to do is learn from it to apply it in our own lives. Should we set a standard where <clears throat> we're always giving everything all away to everybody else? No, but where there's need, we should be quick to respond. And you know the biggest thing that kills covenant? is gossip. Speaking negatively. Speaking badly. Speaking behind people's back. And I'm not saying that that's happening. I mean, I guess it probably is. We all are prone to that a little bit. But do you know what? Jonathan and David's covenantal relationship points to who? It points to Jesus. Covenant finds its perfect expression in the sacrificial life and death of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our leader, and our friend. We should really be breaking bread now, shouldn't we? <laughs> I guess. So here we have, that's all I really wanted to say, that in amongst all of these relationships David had, um, it's almost like, you know, I said the plate of spaghetti. At the, at the, it's almost like Jonathan wasn't a strand of spaghetti. He was the sauce on, the, on it all. He was the thing that made David's relationship strong, secure in that period of time until he died. He came alongside David when David needed someone like Jonathan most. And that is something that we can all learn from. You might have had a similar experience, perhaps not as intense, perhaps not as incredibly noteworthy, but times in your life where someone's come along just at the right time. Well, let's be grateful for those. But I felt the challenge to us is, how can we more Jonathan than David? What about us coming alongside other people when, they, when we see that need? And I want us just to be open and having, you know, new folk join us today and probably next week and the week after as well, I, I don't know, is a great opportunity to do that. But it's also a great opportunity to strengthen what remains. Not forget the foundations of what builds us in the first place. It's not whether we like what we do all of the time. It's not whether we get it all right because we won't and haven't. And neither of you. It's about, as God fundamentally called us to be his kingdom here, and is this the place that we can demonstrate that and outwork that best? And if that is yes, 
let's strengthen the relationships across kings. Let's use David and Jonathan's example as a means of really being open to God about how we can come alongside other people and serve them. Let's not be thinking, I'd like it if someone came and did that to me. Let's think about it the other way around. How can I do that for someone else? That seems to me the thing that speaks most loudly out of David's and Jonathan's relationship, Jonathan and David's relationship. That Jonathan was always on the lookout for how he could help. I don't get the impression David was saying, oh, Jonathan hasn't come around and seen me recently. <laughs> yeah. Haven't had a WhatsApp. But he was there when he needed him. Let's just pray for a sec, shall we? Just reflect on that for a minute or two. It might be that you've found yourself just descending a little bit into some negativity about either people or stuff. If Jonathan was here, he would come along and speak prophetically to you. Focus on what God has called you to do. What's God's promises to you? What's God's promises to this church? You might have found yourself just, I don't know, gossiping a little bit more. And you know, actually you know in your heart if it's not right. We're not going to have any ministry particularly other than God ministering to you right now where you are. Might be finally that God is saying, right, I want you to be open to coming alongside others. It may not be for the whole of your life. It might just be for a season, a period of time. And if we all can take a step in that direction, spiritually, we'll leave this morning stronger as a family than we came in. And we'll become more like Jesus. Jesus.